Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. Today marks the first anniversary of our program, and I would like to say thank you so much to those who've contributed to our success. Our title sponsors, Hemp Meds and Helterra, the advertisers on our site, our amazing guests and contributors and authors, our, uh, the, the producers here at Star Worldwide Networks, Eric Goodall, the composer of our theme song, and of course, my partners who work behind the scenes at The Cannabis Reporter. Happy anniversary. We'd also like to thank Compassionate Certification Centers for helping us spread the word, XRQK Radio Networks for syndicating our program on stations nationwide, and last but not least, many thanks to all of you for listening. We are grateful. So here's to another exciting year. Ah, so let's get started. Last year, we had the pleasure of interviewing a former special agent for the DEA who shared his boots-on-the-ground perspective on the war on drugs here in the U.S. He's among thousands of law enforcement officers who have been advocating for an end to prohibition as a means of solving an ongoing drug problem and addressing the disparities in our criminal justice system. The sad fact of the matter is that the war on drugs hasn't curbed drug use. Drug-related convictions account for more than 7 million arrests and 2.2 million incarcerations, with as many families being ripped apart over nonviolent drug offenses. Unfortunately, the war on drugs has disproportionately affected minorities. Even though statistics show that Caucasians outpace minorities in drug use and addiction, according to the ACLU, people of color are four times more likely to be arrested and convicted. In Iowa, Minnesota, Illinois, and Washington, D.C., blacks are seven to nine times more likely to be arrested for possession. The racial disparity is even more pronounced when it comes to treating addiction. There's an epidemic of addiction to legally prescribed opiates that's ravaging families across the nation. With a crackdown on the overprescribing, addicts are turning to heroin instead. The problem is colorblind with white middle-class users outpacing some of people of color. However, the outcomes differ along the racial lines. While Caucasians are likely to get court-ordered treatment, people of color are more likely to be convicted of a felony. That's the topic of today's show, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest, Inga Franklin. She has a Juris Doctorate and a PhD, and is a former Chicago prosecutor international development professional and member of the Board of Directors of Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which is the organization formerly known as Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, or LEAP. Thank you so much, Inga, for joining us. I'm really happy that you're here today. Well, thank you for having me, and happy anniversary. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I can't believe it's been a year already. It's gone by so quickly, and so much has happened in this year, particularly with new states adopting legalization measures. And, I mean, we're up to 29 states already. That's more than half of the United States. And it's pretty exciting to just have seen this since we started this show And I've been writing about this since 2010, so I've seen a lot of changes since then. 
but um, you have as well. And tell me a little bit about what you're doing at, at LEAP, Law Enforcement Action Partnership. We're an organization of about 150,000 current and former law enforcement professionals and their supporters who have seen the war on drugs firsthand and are appalled at the damage that's been done, the racial disparities, the over-incarceration, the ruined futures, fatherless children. And so we are devoting our energies to trying to call a halt to the war on drugs, all drugs, not just marijuana, because until something is legalized, it can't be regulated. So legalization is a prerequisite for gaining control of these substances. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago in the omnibus budget that was um, passed by Congress, there was actually a provision in there that, that asked the DEA not to allocate funds toward um, overly exercising their, um, their fight against drugs in the cities particularly. And I find what's happening right now pretty interesting. I got my hands on this memo that was written on May 1st of this year, and it came from Jeff Sessions, Attorney General. What's really interesting about this is that it really hasn't made a huge splash yet. I think actually this memo became public today, as a matter of fact, and he's, he writes, um, I write to renew the Department of Justice's opposition to the inclusion of language in any appropriations legislation that would prohibit use of Department of Justice funds in any way, to in any way inhibit its authority to enforce the Controlled Substances Act. And he goes on to explain why. And toward the end of this, he basically states that uh, marijuana has significant negative health uh, effects. Um, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, marijuana is linked to an increased risk of psychiatric disorders such as psychosis, respiratory ailments such as lung infections, cognitive impairments, he says, such as IQ loss, and substance abuse disorder and addiction. And <laughs> it, it, he, he confirms in here also the DEA was right to have it scheduled as, as a controlled substance with no known medical use and um, high potential for abuse. And when you hear this, knowing what you know right now and the scientific advances and, and the success of diminished cartel crime in, in states that have legalized marijuana, what do you think? There are so many different threads here, but first let me talk about the legal end of it. That Jeff Sessions has suddenly announced that he is going to enforce the law to the hilt. It's a little bit hard to complain about the attorney general enforcing the law as written. I fault the Obama administration for this. Instead of changing the drug laws, they said, eh, let's just leave everything on the books, but we won't enforce it, mm -hmm. which left it wide open for another administration to say, hey, the law's on the books, we're going to enforce it. The intellectually honest thing to do is address this legislatively. And what LEAP is certainly pushing for is to get the prohibition of drugs repealed. The ball is really in Congress's court at this point. And that's where the action needs to take place. Instead of arguing about whether we are or are not going to enforce the laws on the books, if you don't like them, change them. But let's be all be honest about what we're doing. And as you pointed out, we're now up to 29 states, I think plus District of Columbia, who have legalized marijuana in some form or other. I think eventually, as we add state by state, we are going to reach a tipping point where our congressional representatives are going to have the political cover that they need in order to say, yes, we have to deal with the underlying law. My guess is that given that it's been moving pretty rapidly over the last couple of years, that that's going to happen before too long, especially now when states are pointing to the amount of tax revenue that they're getting in. Uh, it's going to be real hard to get states to go along with backing off on the income that they're getting.
So I think it's coming. But what I think we need to focus on is getting an honest change in the laws instead of continually uh, trying to work around them. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. And it really is a shame. I mean, during the Obama administration, I think that it was all still so new. I mean, when you look back to 2008, when he first came into office, and even in 2012, we weren't nearly as far along as we are now in terms of the state regulation changes. But I think that there were so many people who have been afraid to put their reputations on the line or what they perceive to be you know, some mark on their reputation if they advocate for drugs. So I agree with that 100%. But here's another issue, too, which, I mean, I, I understand having Congress pass laws, but what about just changing, changing the language um, about, I mean, if you're going to put something in Schedule 1 that has absolutely no known medical use, and that's what it says on the books, so of course that is the law of the land, but changing that, changing the scheduling, even, you know, descheduling would be ideal, but even changing it to, you know, Schedule 2 so that it can be prescribed would really make a huge difference. I mean, and I, I don't hear a lot about who is really trying to make that change within the drug enforcement um, agency's uh, definitions? Well, I don't see DEA trying to do it. And the downside of just moving it down to Schedule 2 is you still have a substance you know, roughly as addictive as caffeine with plenty of medical uses, and we're still trying to control it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I would rather do is you know, put it right in people's faces, the reasons why it's on Schedule 1. And that goes back to the whole racial bias in our drug laws. Now, going all the way back to 1914, which was the first time any drugs were made illegal in the U.S., almost no legislative history, but what little there was uh, one of the quotes I've read says, the fear of cocaine-crazed Negroes raping white women in the South. And in California, Chinamen enticing white women to use opium. So cocaine and opiates were declared illegal. There was no evidence that this was any problem for anybody. Children were never mentioned. This was pure racial and nativist bias. And then marijuana was made illegal in 1937 under some pressure from the U.S. Southwest because there was a lot of Mexican immigration. And, oh, if we make if these people are supposedly bringing marijuana with them and we make marijuana illegal, that's the way to go after them. And then, of course, Nixon, who started the war on drugs in 1971, probably because of his own political problems. According to both his tapes and Ehrlichman's memoirs, Nixon said, it's a black thing, but we can't say that. Wow. So he was aimed, at, their discussions say they wanted to go after blacks and hippies. And these were people who tended to use marijuana and other drugs and not being able to explicitly say we're going to attack blacks and hippies We'll just make their drug of choice illegal. And that's when, you know, if you're if you're drawing a curve, we had had roughly a flat line of prosecution since 1914. It was never any big deal for any of this, except when you, it wanted to be used uh, for racial bias reasons. And then the curve just goes swooping up after 1971. And Nixon also... As, as a matter of operationalizing this, convened a commission chaired by Governor Schaefer, a very reputable guy who was um, from Pennsylvania, to make recommendations about scheduling. He came back saying, marijuana doesn't belong here at all. It has medical uses, and it's not addictive. Nixon, again, according to these records that have slowly come out, essentially threatened Governor Schaefer, saying, you had better get that committee in line. 
this is going to be schedule one. So marijuana became on the drug schedules at all and schedule one specifically for reasons of racial and cultural bias and flying in the face of the best scientific evidence. And I would rather you know, keep pushing that, make anybody who wants it schedule one defend that, not just slide it down to schedule two. It needs to go entirely. Right. And I, I think that in this political climate, that's going to be kind of a tall order. Well, that's why I think it's so important to keep proceeding state by state until we get that critical mass of states in our federal system who are just not going to put up with this nonsense anymore. Right. right. And, and even with the states that have legalized either medical or adult use uh, marijuana, it, the racial divide goes toward business owners, too, because they've made it impossible in many of these states for anyone with a, a history of being arrested or uh, a conviction, a felony conviction for possessing uh, drugs to actually enter into the business. And since, you know, four times more likely to be arrested and incarcerated are the people of color, so the owners in this industry tend, it, you know, it seems like there's, there's a bit of a racial divide there too. I mean, have you seen that in your experience? Well, yes, that's a way of kind of bootstrapping, continuing the, the racial bias. The one bright spot on that is that some states, when they have legalized adult use, have included provisions for expungement of old convictions. I know this is happening in Washington State and in Oregon, where I live. A couple of weeks ago, I was up in Seattle uh, to attend an expungement day that was being conducted by the Minority Cannabis Business Association specifically trying to deal with the problem that you referred to of people who have prior convictions that are locking them out of the business. And they had recruited pro bono attorneys to help people with all the paperwork to get through this. So I think expungement is an important feature of any change in the law. Uh, so far, it seems to be very complicated, but it's a step in the right direction because cleaning up this two generations worth of convictions. Now it's, it's insufficient just to say, okay, going forward, we're going to make this legal. There's, you know, a whole two generations of people with rap sheets full of convictions. And it's not just keeping them out of the cannabis business. It may be preventing them from getting any job yeah. in the legitimate economy. Oh, the negative impact when you carry a felony around is, is just oh, it's stunning. It, it, it's Yeah. And it, it makes it very difficult for them to get up and out of an illegal trade. And I think that's one of the things going on in Chicago with the violence right now. All the convictions, and I saw this back when I was a prosecutor there in the 80s, you look at someone's rap sheet, he is never going to get a job in the legitimate economy. So essentially by convicting people, we were cycling them right back into the drug economy. And then since a illegal marketplace, you can't, as uh, Jeff Sessions recently pointed out, you can't go to court. Uh, you have your only recourse is private enforcement, such as shooting each other. So I think a lot of the violence that we're seeing, especially in Chicago right now, is simply related to the illegality of drugs. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I, I found it, I read a conversation um, that took place uh, between Duarte and and President Trump recently, you know, basically praising the new drug policy that's that's happening in the Philippines, and I don't know if if you're familiar with all of this, but basically they've given free license to people to go and shoot others that they that you know fellow citizens that they suspect are in drugs or you know dealing with drugs or 
even users and that yes, sort of thing. Complete extrajudicial killings. And as so often happens in cases like this, it's a free for all or get out of jail card free to go shoot whoever your enemies are for whatever reason. Right. You can always claim they had something to do with drugs. But rule of law, it is not. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's all it's complete anarchy if you ask me. I I just I find it just so stunning that the war on drugs has gone on for so incredibly long. The ACLU puts out these amazing facts, um, and one of them is that uh, 3,613,969,972 dollars are spent every single year enforcing marijuana laws, and that was as of, I believe it was 2012, when that happened. So now that other states, now that some of the states have, have legalized, I imagine that that amount per year must be going down. But still, when you just think of the staggering numbers and at what cost, you know, I mean, it's beyond just money. It's the cost of society in general. It's, yeah. Now, I have a number of thoughts on why it's lasted so long. Go back to prohibition of alcohol, which lasted only from 1920 to 1933, and that took a constitutional amendment at each end. So that was over stunningly fast. And I think one of the reasons why that was repealed so quickly is because for whatever positive benefit there was of prohibiting alcohol, the downsides were so devastating, and they all came home to roost right here at home. The rest of the world did not give up alcohol. All of the mayhem of Al Capone and others you know, shooting each other in our cities, all the corruption of police and public officials happened right here at home. And when we saw what the costs were, we said, eh, this was not such a good idea. Now think about drugs. For so long, having drugs illegal looked like a freebie. We could make drugs illegal and maybe it would discourage somebody, but there was no cost to doing it. We succeeded in offloading most of the costs of our drug prohibition on the producer and transit countries, especially places like Mexico and Central America where a lot of the cocaine, heroin, and also marijuana are coming from. You know, what's happened to the rule of law in Mexico has been incredible. The corruption of the police, uh, the constant gang violence, you know, same kind of thing we had in Chicago during the 1920s, but there it's on a countrywide basis. But since we control the foreign aid for Mexico, we have forced them to stand on the front lines of our drug war doesn't hurt us, but boy, is it hurting them. And I think if the headless bodies were piling up outside Washington, D.C., instead of outside Mexico City, uh, we'd have stopped a long time ago. And that's why I think the current uh, heroin and opioid addiction problems, there's a real bright side to this. It is affecting white and middle class communities. Mm-hmm. And as the saying goes, never let a good crisis go to waste. So suddenly, the costs are coming home to roost. And do we really want policies which are killing our own children, even if we don't care what happens to those in Mexico? Right. Now, if you think about the incentives for keeping this whole enterprise going, think of all the people who have jobs with DEA. They'd all be out of work. All the police departments who get federal money uh, in order to set up a drug unit. There's something called the 1033 program under which the Pentagon gives surplus army equipment, like those big mine-resistant vehicles developed for Iraq, uh, Humvees to local police, uh, automatic weapons, night vision goggles. Since 97, and this was specifically for fighting the war on drugs, terrorism was added later, over $4 billion worth of surplus equipment's been passed out. And a lot of that is fun stuff. 
I was licensed to drive a Humvee when I worked in Afghanistan. It's a lot more fun than driving a Crown Victoria. So police have every incentive to keep the good times rolling. Yeah, but it's it's so even beyond that, too. I mean, when you consider the pharmaceutical lobby, the alcohol lobby, the private prison lobby, I mean, there are a lot okay. of incentives for for the people in our Congress to keep pushing this issue off and not passing any legislation to change it is follow the money. Yeah. And certainly all the people who manufacture Oxycontin would not be at all happy with somebody just smoking a joint in order to deal with pain. Right. There's so many threads. And given that this war has been going full tilt since 1971, there are a lot of entrenched interests and Again, my only hope is that at some point the states are going to push legality. Um, I, I find it, it's got to be inevitable, at least for, at least for marijuana. And, you know, I mean, other drugs, it, it's going to be a lot harder to convince people that the upside of legalizing is far better than the, um, the problems that they create in our society. It, you know, I mean, it, it would be wonder in a in an ideal world they just legalize all drugs and create treatment programs with the billions of dollars they're spending in incarcerating people. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's our Puritan heritage, but we take this very moralistic view toward you know anything that gets people high. I mean, it was a moral crusade against alcohol. You know, Europeans think we're absolutely mindless with doing this. Yeah, yeah. And so, Europeans and the rest of the world. I mean. Yeah, and Europe has, all the various countries there have taken so many steps toward harm reduction. You know, we certainly should be looking at the example of Switzerland going all the way back to 1994 when they were concerned about the proliferation of needle parks and use of heroin they changed the law so that any addict can go to a government-run clinic and get pharmaceutical-grade heroin supplied by the clinic. They have found in the years since crime is down, HIV transmission down, hepatitis is down, and there are fewer young people even trying heroin. First of all, there's nothing romantic about a substance you get at a government clinic, and the clinics competed with shooting galleries with social recruitment sites. So for them, it's been just win, win, win. Essentially, what they're doing is heroin maintenance, not yeah. insisting that people go clean or even doing methadone or something else. It's just maintenance. It's interesting that in the U.S., we will do maintenance treatment for people with high blood pressure or uh, cholesterol you know, we don't tell them to exercise and lose weight and shape up. We allow maintenance. But because of this moral component for somebody who managed to get themselves on heroin, nope, you go clean and you know, die if you can't do it. But no, we are not going to maintain you on anything. So in this country, when we are just dipping our toes into the idea of a needle exchange or a safe injection site, you know, which is, I find, a kind of bizarre uh, concept. Uh, Seattle is trying to get one off the ground, but it hasn't happened yet. A safe injection site means that you go out, commit crimes, scrounge for some heroin, bring it to a site, we'll give you a clean needle, and maybe there will be somebody there who can uh, resuscitate you if you overdose. I mean, how bizarre is that? Yeah. And what people are getting on the streets that they bring into such sites, now we use the term heroin overdose, but that's really a misnomer. What people are dying of is the additives, especially fentanyl. In an illegal market, sellers have every incentive to cut the quality in order to increase profits. Uh, there is a safe injection site, several actually, operating in Canada, and one in British Columbia recently did tested the stuff that people were bringing into their safe injection site. And 80% of it was cut with fentanyl. 
So we know that what's out there is killing people. Right. And not being willing to deal with it is essentially saying, hey, we would rather have our citizens die than take a much more realistic approach toward dealing with these substances. Yeah, and something else, too. I mean, even in the illegal marijuana trade, um, being grown in an uncontrolled environment and, you know, with, with laced with whatever, you know, God knows what. And I've heard horror stories about um, teenagers, you know, trying marijuana for the first time and only to find that it was laced with heroin. And then they, before long, they find themselves an addict and or people getting, you know, permanent mold damage, you know, fungus in their lungs and, you know, just getting sick from that. And, you know, once that happens to you, it's very difficult to bring your health back. And and I wonder how much of those statistics about people getting addicted to to marijuana or trying harder drugs is because of just that sort of adulteration. Right. Because, I mean, science has proven that, you know, it's habit forming, but it's not addictive in and of itself. It's not like a physical addiction where you go right. through physical withdrawals. It just is not, period. And yet, you know, the statistics, if somebody goes in and said that, you know, this experience happened to them because of marijuana, well, yeah, because of unregulated marijuana. And once you start sure. regulating it and, you know, earning the tax dollars from it, number one, but number two, um, you can control the quality of what's out you there and keep people Quality safe. control and the people who are selling legally, such as in Oregon now, have every incentive to make sure they've got really good quality stuff, they can show test results, they can show their customers that what we're getting is good. Right. And, I mean, there's one sort of a problem here of states both trying to discourage it because they're still not you know, willing to you know, bite the bullet on, hey, this is legal, um, and trying to get tax revenue. If the tax is set too high, that will shift some people into the illegal market. Right. I think that's one which is going to settle down you know, over the years. Uh, people become a little more realistic about it. And also having education so that people understand what can go wrong with getting something in an illegal market, which is much more likely to influence behavior than showing the reefer madness film and trying to convince people that this whole thing is terribly scary. You know, honesty has been one of the real casualties in this whole war on drugs. There's been just so much dishonesty throughout the whole thing. Everything from the motivations for making illegal in the first place to <laughs> yeah. accurate information. The, the, yeah, the war on drugs was definitely predicated on lies. Yeah. For and sure. Someday we are going to look back on this and say, what in the world were our parents and grandparents thinking going through this period in the U.S.? Yeah. <laughs> was it the, there was a famous quote out there. CEO of Dr. Bronner's. I interviewed him a while back. He said he was standing outside of the DEA and being arrested for planting hemp seeds in the yard. And as he was being ushered into the back of a, of a, a law enforcement vehicle, he started screaming, you know, your grandchildren are going to look back on this and think that you people were nuts. <laughs> and, yes. you know, he's absolutely right. I mean, yeah. you know, we think idea. that people were nuts for alcohol prohibition and look at all the problems that that caused. And... Yeah. I think and the same industrial thing. hemp, when there is nothing intoxicating about it, but it's associated with. Well, also, I think that. Import the finished products. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and our farmers miss out on a billion dollar market. I mean, and it's it's perfectly legal to buy anywhere in the United States and, and you know, even across state lines. And I, I don't know, it's just. It's absolutely, it's absolutely mind-boggling to me. But I, I wanted to touch on, too, you've spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. And yes. that's, that is a ground zero for poppy production. But 
before before you start on that, because I'm really interested in hearing your experience there and and your point of view about the war on drugs with that experience. But I also wanted to touch on the fact that um, we have st we started this convention with the 1971 um, uh, law prohibiting. Um, it's the war on drugs, essentially, just yeah. simply put. And that convention was adopted by so many different countries. So one of the arguments that I've heard, or justifications for not um, passing any legislation in the, in the US uh, Congress, is that they would have to undo some of these drug treaties and conventions, and it's a matter of saving face not to. But what I find interesting is that, you know, like you said, the war goes to those countries. And yes. going back to the history of these drug conventions, we essentially browbeat the rest of the world into signing up to these. And so if we would say, eh, changed our minds on the whole thing, a lot of countries would very happily you know, ditch the whole illusion. Like Portugal, for example, the reason they decriminalized rather than legalize all drugs is because of this drug convention. They felt that they couldn't, you know, go all the way and legalize. In effect, that's what's happened, but not quite. Uh, and when has the U.S. Congress ever felt that it was constrained by a U.N. treaty? Half the time, we don't even pay our dues. So I think saying, oh, there are treaty obligations, I think that's a bogus excuse. That could be undone, assuming that we care at all, very simply. Yeah. And, of course, there are, there is a whole bureaucracy, the UN Office of Narcotics and Crime, UNODC, Narcotics and Drug Control or something, uh, a whole bureaucracy of people around the world who have jobs fighting drugs. It's the international counterpart of the DEA. People have incentives for keeping the war going. So, yeah, I, not I, to I mention don't... not to mention probably funding from the United States. Yes, to keep it yes. going. And so, if, if we if we abandon those treaties, then they don't get their funding. Follow the money, right? Always. <laughs> so, and speaking of which, um, tell me about your perspective of being in Afghanistan, ground zero for poppy fields. Yeah, supposedly we produce, what, 95% of the world's opium poppy. Uh, as far as the history of this goes, you know, Afghanistan has a nice dry climate. I remember reading a book by an anthropologist in Afghanistan. This was written, I think, 1976. He mentioned opium poppy only in an appendix listing medicinal herbs. Because opium had been grown occasionally, and it was often the only medicinal remedy that was available, like for coughs or something. So it was capable of growing there, but it didn't, didn't happen. Then, along about 19, the end of the 1970s, through our efforts, we decided we wanted to stamp out opium production in the Golden Triangle of Burma and Thailand. And a combination of our enforcement, uh, discovery that the sex trade was pretty lucrative, and you know, small appliance manufacturer. The economies, especially in Thailand, modernized and so it was really no big deal when the opium pushed out or was was removed pushed out but the worldwide demand didn't change uh, coincidentally the russians invaded afghanistan in 1979 there being no particular government control to raise any objection to drugs the poppy cultivation simply moved from the golden triangle which was no longer golden into Afghanistan, and production took off, which should not be any big surprise. Then, right after 2001, we showed up in Afghanistan because of Osama bin Laden and company having been harbored in the Kandahar area, and then we discovered that, oh my gosh, these people are growing poppies, and got detoured into worrying about that. 
because their main cash crop has been declared illegal by us, the natural and inevitable result has been governmental corruption. Uh, in 2011 and 12, I was in the southern province of Helmand, which is the source of 90% of the world's opium poppy. I was working with the Marine Corps headquarters there. We learned that people were buying the position of chief of police out in the middle of nowhere with a mud brick police station for 150000 U.S. dollars per year and then another payment for next year. And that 150000 was paid up the chain of command in the Ministry of the Interior, which runs the police, which is to say this went all the way up to Kabul. And certainly, according to all my Afghan friends, the main uh, drug cartel in the South was run by the Karzai family. So our insistence on having opium poppy illegal, you know, the agricultural uh, landscape pretty much destroyed over the course of you know, the Russians, the Taliban and our war. The main cash crop they're left with is opium poppy, but it being illegal, we get massive governmental corruption. And I also think that that's one of the big pieces of why we constantly have insurgencies. Officials are feathering their own nests and nobody is doing much for the citizens of Afghanistan. Now, we keep talking about Taliban doing one thing or another, but that seems to be kind of a group noun for everybody who's shooting. The government has very little legitimacy, and there, there are some other threads having to do with non-implementation of constitutional requirements for local government uh, that feed into this. But the net result of all these problems is that the average uh, Afghan citizen is simply at the mercy of corrupt and incompetent uh, government officials who are mostly busy profiting off the international contracting dollars and the drug trade. So when Taliban or whatever variety of insurgents they are, they're either ignored or passively supported by a lot of the population. Why fight and die for a government that's not doing anything for you? And our making opium poppy illegal is one of you know, the big drivers, I think, of that. Yeah. But also, um, I think that the the rationale I would think for for the United States military um, policing the illegal drug trade or what they perceive to be the illegal drug trade is, and this would be the public justification for it, is that that the poppy fields are supporting terrorism. Well, that's not really true. At the time, I was working with the Marine Corps. I asked the intel people, what does it cost to finance the insurgency? And they said, we don't know. No one's ever asked. I said, well, maybe you should find out. You know, you need to know who you're fighting. And people dug up a few estimates, and it was some ridiculously low numbers, like $350 million a year and compare that against the billions that we're putting in. So I think it's quite true that the Taliban of whatever stripe are taxing the drug trade. 10% uh, tax is considered to be kind of standard. But the insurgency is a very low budget. These are people mostly wearing AK, toting AK-47s and wearing flip-flops and most of them are fighting quite locally. They can go home for dinner. It's a very low-budget operation. They could fund their war out of a bake sale if they didn't have the, the poppy. So, yes, they are using the poppy because it's what's available to tax. There isn't anything else. But saying that we need to defeat drugs in order to defeat the insurgency, I think, is nonsense. When you put that small quantity of money against the huge amounts and all the training and equipment we're putting in, you know, th there's just no comparison. We're putting billions in. They're putting in a few million. So, and do you think that, do you think that there are more problems caused um, 
in terms of the hatred um, that's expressed in war, when the U.S. military is burning down poppy fields, for example, um, do you think that just perpetuates the war, the, the, the actual war, as opposed to the war on drugs? Yeah, well, mostly it's not the U.S. who's burning down poppy fields. For one thing, a local com uh, army commanders know that antagonizing the population like that is only going to create problems. We usually try to stay more hands-off. Hands what the U.S. has been doing is giving money to governors who are willing to eradicate poppy. And the U.S. may, and this has varied a whole lot over the last 16 years as to what we're doing, but we have sometimes provided protection, armed protection, for the people who go in to destroy poppy fields. And a lot of it's done by Afghan forces. But what we were finding is that the governors who received this money from the U.S. were using it to eradicate the fields of their political enemies. And the poppy fields belonging to their political supporters were just fine. So this was driving more of a wedge between people and government and exacerbating well, tensions between different tribal tribes, factions. Right. And we're financing this. So... You know, there was just no good that could come of this. So if the U.S. were to abandon its drug policy, how do you think that would improve things in Afghanistan? If we suddenly said, hey, this is no longer illegal, a lot of officials, especially all the police, would be really bummed out. You know, what do you mean we can't demand protection money anymore? Or a cut of this lucrative business? Suddenly it would be a commodity. Mm. Um, but there are so many problems there involving the governments and all the interference from Pakistan that that's, you know, the drug illegality right now is a piece of the puzzle, but it's changing it. It's not going to solve all the governance problems. I think we would see more change in Mexico and Central America. You know, the amount of violence because the uh, you know the main product pushed by the drug cartels is illegal, but there's a demand for it in the U.S., the violence is going to continue. And if we were to say, eh, changed our mind, uh, heroin is no longer illegal, that is going to upset a lot of people who are profiting off this. I, I did see a newspaper article a year or so ago with a marijuana producer in Mexico who was losing market share saying, what is it with these Americans legalizing? Now, there goes my market. And, of course, what Mexico shipping in is uncontrolled for pesticides and whatever other additives there might be. So I think most American consumers are much happier to buy you know, regulated marijuana than something coming in from Mexico. Plus, our quality is rumored to be better. Right. So I think we could immediately have see some effects in Central and South America, Central America and Mexico uh, that would happen pretty quickly. I think it's going to take a longer time, you know, to try to deal with some of Afghanistan's problems especially since a lot of that comes from Pakistan. Right. I think it's inevitable, Inga, I really do. I, I think that it's only a matter of time before the public demand for change in our laws, in our drug laws, um, applies enough pressure that our leaders are going to have to jump on board or just not get reelected. It seems like that's an inevitability anyway. And I think it is, especially for marijuana. Heroin is going to be a harder sell. I think part of our problem there is our language. The word legalization sounds like seal of approval. You know, why would you legalize heroin? But what that really means, and this is what Leap is constantly trying to explain, is what legalization means is stop using the criminal justice system as your one and only mechanism for trying to manage a substance which is problematic.
or to try to manage a, a certain population group. Yes. To and bring this around full circle. Think, you know, publicizing the fact that managing you know, racial and disfavored immigrant groups has been one of the reasons for doing this. Mm -hmm. Don't let people get away with saying, oh, it's the kids. The kids have never been the issue. Right. All the data show that in places where marijuana is legal, teen use is either constant or down. Right. You know, because, you know, a legal shop is going to take business away from the illegal market. Somebody selling on a school ground, you know, one reason for doing that for something that's illegal is it gets, you know, customers. Same, same reason that... Uh, how credit card companies send credit cards to college students. They hope to hook them and keep them as customers for a long time. But if as soon as a student turns 21 and can go to the local pot shop and get some high-quality stuff, suddenly they're out of the illegal market. So there become fewer incentives for even trying to cultivate a young population. Right. Um, so the best way to keep... Uh, intoxicants of any variety out of the hands of kids is to legalize and regulate. Put the adults in the community in charge. Right now, if something is illegal, it's criminals who get to make all the decisions. And that's the adults in the community abdicating their responsibility. I would also like to see some of the, the money that we would save by not prosecuting people. And let's think about the reasons that people turn to something like heroin or meth, that tends to be in economically depressed areas, whether it's southern Indiana, West Virginia, eastern part of Oregon. You know, thriving business communities do not have heroin epidemics going on. So let's put some money into the problems that are driving people to think that they don't have anything better to do with their lives. Right. Well, and I think also there is an exception to that. And there are um, white middle class neighborhoods all over the country that have an alarming heroin problem because they've first become addicted to opiate prescriptions and then they got cut off. Yeah, it's addiction to something that's been prescribed for the person or often it comes from taking it out of the medicine cabinet of somebody who's got it. Right. And that over-prescribing of opioids, that is a whole nother thread here. Now, why is it that so many Americans are in pain when the rest of the world doesn't seem to be having these problems? And some of that is, you know, that we as a society have come to think that for any problem, there'd better be a solution right this minute that something can be solved with, a, with a, uh, a drug to fix the problem right now, rather than, hey, if you try exercise uh, for the next couple of weeks, this will feel better. So we've, we've become addicted to instant gratification on pain management. So why is there so much pain in the first place? Why does it have to be cured immediately? I think part of that is the advertising on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other countries that I know of that allow direct-to-consumer advertisement, I think New Zealand is one, and I think also Russia. Uh, the rest of the civilized world does not. And we get this barrage of, you know, maybe you know, talk to your doctor about whatever. You know, the people are encouraged to look for ailments that may never have occurred to them that they have. And the answer that there is a there's there's got to be some expensive pharmaceutical that's going to solve your problem. Mm -hmm. So, I, dealing with the opioid crisis, there are so many threads. Now, the overweight population, the what's causing pain, the availability of big pharma with incentives to sell this stuff, uh, direct to consumer drug advertisement. So there, there isn't just one change that's really going to turn the situation around. But making heroin illegal is certainly uh, 
And changing the illegality is one intervention that I think can start getting a handle, at least on the consequences of some of these problems. Well, you know, I think that we're moving in the right direction with with the regulation of, of cannabis. And I think that once people see the successes that can come from that, I think that it'll take a more progressive um, Congress, I think, to really make some changes there. But I, I think we'll eventually start to see it eventually. Well, I, I, think, I think it will come. Yeah. So final thoughts. I am getting a signal that we need to wrap it up. Oh. But um, what would you like for our listeners to know as the big takeaway from this hour? One, I guess one takeaway is, can we increase the level of honesty and accuracy in our whole discussion of the drug problem? Try to get away from emotions and slogans, and let's look honestly at cause and effect. And let's also look at the experience of other countries, such as Europe, on harm reduction and start thinking about how things might be different in this country. We can make change. We don't have to be hostage to two generations of Nixon's war on drugs. Yeah. And also um, begin to open our hearts and minds to what's happening with youth of color, especially, and trying to find solutions within the inner cities especially where incarceration is just it's it's exponentially higher than in other places oh absolutely and and to have an honest discussion about that i think is hard for a lot of people mm -hmm. yeah so again going back to the honesty and accuracy those statistics that the aclu has about the racial disparities those are hard to argue with yeah I mean, even here in Oregon, a black person is twice as likely as a white person to be arrested for possession. Well, I think that we have a lot of work cut out for us. <laughs> uh, and we do, but, you know, I, I do feel that things are moving in a positive direction, even for a, when we have a new attorney general who would like to turn back the clock. I, th I think things have progressed too far, but that's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I would look at the glasses half full rather than half empty. Good way to look at it. Really a good way to look at it. Oh, so Inga, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I certainly enjoyed it. It's nice to have a whole hour to talk about things. I know. You can really get really in-depth into some of these topics, and it's just fascinating. Yeah. I really enjoyed this conversation, and um, I'd love to follow up with you again in the future. And uh, I put up an article by you today up on our website. So um, if anyone is interested in hearing more about your point of view, and I'll continue to do so as long as you're good with it. Oh, I'd be happy to have that. And if you could also post the link to Leap's website. Yes, actually, I have done that as well. And I will do that again as, yeah. you know, for this particular episode of of the Cannabis Reporter. So yeah, I'll definitely be posting some information. So, oh, it's time to say goodbye. So thank you well, again. Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. So here we go. Another episode comes to a close. I'd personally like to thank my guest, Inga Franklin, for sharing her insights and knowledge with us today. If you want to learn more about Law Enforcement Action Partnership and other work she is doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com and click broadcast to find today's episode. I also have posted articles um, that are written by her on our website, so you will see those in the features section. Many thanks to our team here at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine. I'd also like to thank Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute. He'll be back again with another edition of that next week. I'd also like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, HempMeds.com and HealthTerra. We couldn't be doing this without you. 
Last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening around the nation on XRQK Radio Network. Tune in again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling, evergreen is always where I feel The blue is blue falling, and sheets make